This is the word of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Beginning in verse 11, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. You may be seated. There is a story told, and perhaps apocryphal, a story told of Alexander the Great. The story goes that one day he and a small company of soldiers approached a fortified city. And when Alexander got close enough, he called for the king of that city. And Alexander demanded that the king immediately surrender the city and everyone who was inside. To such a request, the king scoffed. Why should I surrender to you? You can do us no harm. Alexander responded by ordering his men to line up single file and to begin marching toward a nearby cliff. As the townspeople gathered on the wall to watch, they were struck with terror. They were struck with terror because they watched as one by one Alexander's soldiers marched without hesitation toward the cliff. And not just toward the cliff, but right over it. After ten soldiers had plunged to their death, Alexander ordered the small remaining soldiers to return to his side. At this display, the king and townspeople immediately surrendered. They realized if a few men were willing to die for the command or for their leader or at his mere command, then they knew there was nothing that they could do to keep this man from taking their city. I share that with you, brothers and sisters, because as we come to nearly the end of Paul's letter to his young protege, Timothy, what Paul is going to do is he's going to remind Timothy of his duty, his duty as a soldier for Christ, and how, as a soldier for Christ, he must obey the commands of Christ. Now, I would just point out here at the front end that, that this idea of being a soldier for Christ, it, it sort of bookends the whole letter of 1 Timothy. I say that because all the way back in chapter 1, verse 18, Paul says, wage the good warfare. No doubt, soldier language. And then when you come here to the end in chapter 6, verse 12, we see similar language. Fight the good fight of the faith. So chapter 1, wage war. Chapter 6, fight the good fight. 
So, so Timothy, the, the man of God, as he is addressed there in verse 11, he is a soldier. And as we're going to see momentarily, this imagery of being a soldier, it applies to all of God's people. So that if you are a Christian, you are enlisted, if you will, in the Lord's army. The question for us immediately becomes, well, what does that mean? In what ways, practically speaking, are we to march as soldiers? And that will be the focus of our time this morning in God's Word. We're going to see what it looks like to to fight the good fight of the faith. Or to be more specific to our passage, we are going to focus on the mission and the motive of the Christian and of the church. The mission and the motive. Let's begin with the mission. What is the man of God called to do here? Or better said, what are your orders, Christian soldier, from King Jesus? The first directive is found in verse 11. Flee. Verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. So sometimes in battle, what you have to do is retreat. And so the question here is, well, what must you and I retreat from? And verse 11 tells us to flee these things. So what are these things? And the answer is, it really encompasses all that Paul has written to Timothy back in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 3 through 10. You may remember, it's been a couple of weeks, but Paul warned Timothy and the church of this plague This plague of false teachers and their false teaching. In fact, the false teachers had a disease that was eating at their soul. And that disease was the cancer of conceit. They were swollen with pride. And this disease had three primary symptoms. They craved change. They craved controversy. And they craved cash. In other words, these false teachers had deviated from the gospel. Christ was no longer enough. His life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, from the perspective of the false teachers, that was all old hat. They craved something new, something trendy, something that would really scratch their sinful itch. They also craved controversy. They were verbal brawlers, always picking a fight. They specialized in making mountains out of molehills and molehills out of mountains. And then, of course, they wanted their wallets fat, as all false teachers do. So that really, at the end of the day, what they worshipped was dead presidents. They served them, they loved them, they worshipped them. And so to all of that, to all of these things, verse 11, the Christian soldier must flee. So hear me well. If you are a Christian and you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to bear fruit and thrive, then you must learn to put distance between self and sin. You must, verse 11, flee those things. Those things that would rival your affections for Christ, they must be abandoned. Those vices that rob you of your Christian joy and Christian fruit, they must be repented of. Your sin, 
that will stumble you and entangle you and even trap you. It must be killed. You see, church, we need to start seeing sin for what sin is. We need to recognize, as you've heard me say before, that sin is a terrorist. And when it comes to terrorists, they will either kill you or you will kill them. There there is no negotiating. Let me ask you, do you think of sin that way? Do you think of your own sin in those categories? Do you picture sin standing behind you holding a gun to your head? Because that's what it's doing. And you will either lay there and do nothing and sin will destroy you or you will, with all the strength that you can muster from the Holy Spirit, you will wrestle that terrorist to the ground, steal his gun, turn it back on him, and leave him in a chalk outline. You see, those are the options. Those are the only options. We are not a people who cozy up to sin. We run from it. We put distance between us and it. It's been rightly said, the best way to be free is to flee. But, and please hear this because I think this is where a lot of Christians zig when they're supposed to zag. It is not enough to merely flee from something. You must also flee to something. Right? So as a soldier, if all you do is retreat, that's not enough. You, you also must pursue. And that brings us to our second directive. I'm going to use the word follow this morning. Verse 11 brings this out. We read, but as for you, O man of God, flee these things. That's not all. Very next word, pursue. And then you'll notice, we'll go over these in a moment. You have these six godly character traits. And again, I really want to press on your mind the contrast. Because what Scripture says is, flee this stuff, pursue that stuff. Quit going over here, start going over here. Christian, if you were to wage the good warfare, 1 Timothy 1.18, then you must turn from sin and you must turn toward your Savior. You might think of it like this. The human heart, your heart, In a lot of ways, it's like a ride at the amusement park. And you know what? There's all sorts of sins lined up just waiting for a chance to get on and enjoy the ride. But here's the thing that we often miss. Satan is more than happy for a sin every now and then to get off of the ride just so long as a different sin can climb aboard. So my point is this, it is not enough to simply trade one sin for another. The gospel compels us to flee sin entirely and to follow the Savior wholeheartedly. And specifically here in our passage, we are told to pursue six character traits, six Holy Spirit-wrought virtues in place of the sin that so easily ensnares us. The first is righteousness. Now, in the gospel, we are gifted righteousness. The very righteousness of Christ himself becomes ours. And it is ours by grace alone, through faith alone. So that if you are a Christian right now, you can say this, 
I am righteous. Not because of yourself, you're unrighteous. But in Christ, you are righteous. You are robed with his righteousness. And that is all 100% true. It's the heart of the gospel. However, practically speaking, we are called to pursue righteousness in our day-to-day lives. And here, this righteousness, it refers to conduct that is in accord with God's law and pleasing to him. So I want you to catch how this math shakes out. This is how gospel math works throughout the Bible. You are righteous right now solely on account of Christ. You are righteous, so therefore pursue righteousness so that you can be what you already are. You understand that? That's the wonder of how the gospel works out. You are righteous, now act like it. Be what you are. Then the Christian soldier is also to give himself to the middle of verse 11, godliness. Godliness is sort of the idea that man owes to God. Again, because we have been redeemed by Christ, we are called then to pursue Christ-likeness, or to use the language here, godliness. Next, you have faith. Now, this isn't saving faith that which the Holy Spirit gifts his elect people in the miracle of regeneration. No, this is sort of a, like a day-in and day-out faith. To say the same thing a little bit differently, this is not justifying faith, but sustaining faith. For, for example, it, it's the faith on Monday that rests in the utter sufficiency of Christ, no matter what happens at the office. It's it's the faith on Thursday afternoon that relies upon God and God alone, even when you get that call from your doctor about your blood work. It's the same faith on Friday night that finds its identity in the Savior and not self, which keeps you from compromising or sinning with those so-called friends. This is the faith that we are called to pursue. And the question is, well, how do we lay hold of this faith? How do we grow in it? And I assure you, there are no shortcuts. There's only one way. And the way that we grow in the faith is that we give ourselves to the ordinary means of grace, whereby our faith will be strengthened and nourished. What that means is this. If you want to grow in faith, then you will make it a priority to gather with God's people. And you will gather to hear God's word read and God's word preached. You will joyfully lift your voice in song. You will confess your sins. You will lean in to the promises of the gospel. You will eat the bread and drink the wine in faith. You will humbly bow your head in prayer. You see, these are the means of grace that God has given to us. And so what God is telling us here is that if if you want to grow in faith, then you need to give yourself to the faith. This is how you grow in it. Paul then calls us to pursue love. This is not a love first and foremost for Christ. This is a love for 
for one another. I would encourage you to look around. And I mean that. It's not rhetorical, really, to, to look around. And I, and I say that because these are those whom Christ has called you to love. Christians often make two mistakes when it comes to how we're supposed to love in the Bible. The first is that we assume that we're supposed to, like, love our best friends. It's pretty easy. Or a second mistake is that we assume that this idea that we're supposed to love one another, that it's sort of this nameless, faceless idea, right? It's easy to love people as long as those people don't have names. But what the scriptures tell us is that in the church, our love is actually made visible. Our Christian love is demonstrated as we Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And that's not always going to be your best friend. It's not always going to be who you get along with. It's often going to be those that are all around you. Now, at the same time, we ought to be sure of this, that our love for one another, it overflows from your heart only because it first overflowed from the heart of Christ. That is to say, that's the cloud from which the rain of our hearts drop. It's Christ's love. Christ's love for us energizes our love for others. Remember 1 John 4, 19? We love because he first loved us. This is why we love. And so Christ has shed his blood and redeemed us, demonstrating his love for us. And the more that we sink our teeth into that delicacy, the more that that we will overflow with love toward those around us. Which means, if one of your symptoms is you don't love people, the disease might very well be that you are not meditating on the love of Christ for you. Then fifth, you have steadfastness. Perhaps not the best translation. Here, it's the idea of an attitude of patience and trust that a person has when they're they're bearing up under unjust treatment. Know this, Christian soldier, as you flee from sin and follow your Savior, it will not be met with the applause of men in this world. The fact of the matter is you will suffer. The more faithful you are to Christ, the more you will be maligned and harassed. And so, as Scripture tells us in other places, rather than return evil for evil, God's Word is telling us here to pursue steadfastness. And again, as a Christian soldier, the question for us is, well, how how do we do that? Might I suggest to you that you begin by immersing yourself in the patience that Christ has shown you. Again, you do that. You you begin to see your sin for what it is, and you begin to see the love of Christ and the patience that he has demonstrated toward you. You lean into that, and you will quickly see how your heart melts towards those who are giving you gruff. Finally, you have gentleness. Here's the deal. Gentleness is only needed in a world with difficult people. And difficult people are everywhere. They might even be sitting right next to you. 
So Christian, you are to arm yourself with gentleness. Do you remember how the prophet Isaiah described the Lord Jesus? A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. As hard-bitten Calvinists, we often want to think about how Christ is king and lord and sovereign, and he's all of those things. Don't misunderstand me. But that's half the story. He is also altogether gentle and tender and precious in how he deals with his people. Again, here's a, here's a little candle. Christ will not come by and snuff it out. He's gentle. He's patient. He's tender. And so as those who are Christ, we are called to cultivate such an attitude. We are to be gentle in our dealings one with another because Christ is gentle in his dealings with us. And here's the deal. This is what I want you to see and understand and feel in your bones. This righteousness and godliness and faith and love and steadfastness and gentleness, hear me well, you will not, I repeat, not stumble into it. As Christians, we sometimes talk about falling into sin, and I understand what is meant by that. But know this, no one ever just falls into holiness. It doesn't work that way. Holiness or Christ-likeness, it must be pursued. It must be sought out. There must be within your soul a white-hot passion. In the same way that a police officer barrels down the highway in hot pursuit of his suspect, so you too, Christian, must be in hot pursuit of Christ. That means the sirens are on, the, the foot is on the gas, there's no letting up. You must give yourself to Christ. You must pursue Him, to use the language of verse 11. You must follow hard after Him. If not you will fall into sin. But you will never fall into holiness. Soldiers of Christ, we have a mission. We are to flee, we are to follow, and now third, we are to fight. That's the the language of verse 12, right? Fight the good fight of the faith. Uh, Scripture has taught us in 1 Timothy that as Christians, we are not to be contentious. That's true. But we are called to contend. And you better believe that there is a difference. Soldiers, and this is true both in the world and in the church, they are called to fight. It comes with the territory. Now, lest you think I'm overplaying my hand, it is worth mentioning that the Greek word Paul uses there in verse 12, the word the ESV translates as fight, we actually get our English word agonize from it. So Christians, we are told to agonize, to strain ourselves, to work hard, to sweat. Dear brother and sister, we are to fight. And I should add, that same word fight, at the time that Paul wrote his letter, this was used in both military and athletic endeavors to describe the concentration, discipline, and extreme effort needed to win. Think specifically of an athletic competition such as a boxing match or a wrestling tournament. 
That's the flavor. That's how this word is used. The point then of our passage? Well, we can at least say this. At minimum, the Christian life is a hard one. Can we say that? Can we, can we just be honest and say that being a Christian is tough? It's altogether taxing, and it's taxing because the devil hates us, and the world despises us, and our flesh relentlessly tempts us. On top of that, the more faithful we are to Christ, the more hostility we will experience in this world. And then, to make matters worse, and this is one of the great ironies we see throughout church history, we find that the saints who get closer to Christ, you know how they feel? More sinful. That's an indication of your growing in grace. The more you grow in grace, the more unworthy you will feel in your heart. The more that you grow in Christ-likeness, the more you will realize how unchristlike you are. That is the universal testimony of God's people down through the ages. It's like approaching the sun With every inch, we feel its heat, and we are worried that we might be consumed. The same thing is true as we grow into Christ. The point is, this is the Christian life, and, and I genuinely mean this. I am sorry if you were duped into thinking something else. If you were duped into thinking that being a Christian was about getting your get-out-of-hell-free card punched and now you just sit on your hands and eat Cheetos all day. That is not the Christian life. That's like sort of the American evangelical idea of the Christian life. But that is certainly not biblical Christianity. The picture in front of us here is that we are in a foxhole. And we are taking fire. And there are bullets that are whizzing all around us. And it's true, sometimes we return fire. But if we're honest, most of us want to just be home in our bed. And so the exhortation is this, don't give up. Don't give up. Continue to fight. And continue to fight with a confidence. A confidence because one day, Christian, your faith will give way to sight. And when it does, the agony of this life will fade away like the husk from the wheat. So Christian, flee and follow and fight and finally fix. Fix your eyes on Christ and eternal life. That's how verse 12 puts it. And I want you to listen to the intense language. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Do you you realize how there is no sense of passivity here? Take hold of it. Cling to it. Both hands, white knuckles. Don't let it go. Fasten on to it. Just as Odysseus was fixed to the mast of his ship, unable to move or escape or be tempted by the sirens, so you also must fix yourself to Christ and eternal life. Please notice, Christian, this eternal life of verse 12, this is to what you were called. You were called to this. You were called to eternal life. And you know what? You don't call yourself. You, you were called to eternal life by God. In other words, God has done this. God has called you to eternal life. The Father has ordained you from eternity past to be 
his son or his daughter, to, to come to his table not as his foe but as his friend. The Son of God has become incarnate on your behalf. He has lived a life of utter perfection in your stead. He has died in your place on the cross, paying the penalty for the sin that you owed. He has been raised for your justification, and He presently is seated at the right hand of God, interceding for you. And the Holy Spirit of God has converted you, sealed you, and makes you secure for your inheritance. This is all what God has done. This is all what God has called you to. This is, verse 12, the eternal life to which you were called. And let's be very clear. God has called you to this eternal life by grace. It is all, every syllable, on account of Christ. It is all owing to God's love. It is all to be a display of God's mercy. So that in a lot of ways, what you and I will be for all of eternity is really a trophy of God's grace. This is what we have been called to. And Paul is exhorting Timothy and the church in Ephesus and us to lay hold of this, to reach out to it, to fix ourselves to it. We should add this eternal life here. The emphasis is not so much on its duration, but its quality. Now, don't misunderstand me here. Eternal life is eternal. That's why it's called eternal life. That's what Scripture says, and I'm not suggesting anything less. But this eternal life, it's not just like long. (laughs) It's good. It's glorious. Sometimes Christians have this idea, thanks to Hallmark, that that what eternity is, is you and I resting on a cloud next to some half-naked baby cherub who plays a harp all day. And admittedly, that does not sound all that great. But eternal life is about you and I being fully and finally satisfied in the God who made us, sustains us, and redeems us. Eternal life is you and I enjoying uninhibited communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And you know what? That's what you were made for. Your heart will find its greatest joy and greatest satisfaction when you are in the presence of God. Remember what Jesus said? He told us in John 17, 3, This is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. What is eternal life according to Christ? It is knowing God. Not knowing God like the way you know your multiplication tables, but knowing God deeply and drinking from the well of His infinite grace and glory so that you are satisfied in Him. So Christian soldier, if that is your future, what are you to do in the present? What are you to do right now? Well, verse 12 again, take hold of this eternal life. Do it now. Fix your eyes on it. Reach out to it. Revel in it. Rejoice over it. As Paul would say to the Philippians, press on to make it your own. 
He would go on to say, One thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward or agonizing, fighting, right? Straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. I'm straining forward. I'm pressing on Philippians 3. 1 uh, Timothy chapter 6, verse 12. Take hold of it. It's the same flavor. You see, the fight of faith won't last forever. Praise God. But the life of faith will. And so right now, particularly as we begin this new year, we have to fix our eyes on it. We have to cling to it. We have to lean into it. Now before we move on, I do want to hammer one more nail. And perhaps it's already been hammered sufficiently, but bear with me. These four words or phrases, flee, pursue, fight, take hold of, these are all imperatives in the original language. And what that means is that these are all verbs that are requiring action on our part. So we don't get to read 1 Timothy chapter 6 and have the luxury of sitting on our hands. We are not waiting for liver shivers. We're not waiting for signs. We're not waiting for a hand to write something in blood on the moon and tell us what to do. God has told us clearly, this is the mission. To be effective soldiers for Christ, we are to flee, follow, fight, and fix. That's our job. And like Alexander's soldiers, we have the responsibility to do what our commander tells us to do. Now, beloved, that is the mission. And it's not just the mission, it is our mission, your mission. What I want to do now is turn to the motive. And I assure you, as you look at your clock, we will be much, much briefer here. The question before us at this point is not what must be done, but why. Why is a Christian soldier to wage war? And our passage gives us three answers. First, presence should motivate us. Not presence like you got last week under the tree, but presence in the sense of verse 12. We're told to fight the good fight of faith, take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and here we go, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So the point is there's, there's witnesses involved, just like at a wedding. When you attend a wedding, you are not there just for the drinks or for the dancing or for the desserts. You are there to be a witness of the vows that are exchanged and the covenant that is being made in front of you. And similarly, we have witnesses when it comes to verse 12, making the good confession. So who are those witnesses? Well, it most certainly includes God the Father. Beginning of verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God. So God the Father here is invoked as a witness. So also is the Son of God. Middle of verse 13. And of Christ Jesus, who in the testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession. So, so the Father is a witness. Christ is a witness. Christ is also an example because he too made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. But that's not all. You also have the church or the body of Christ. This is all more than implied there at the end of verse 12. Because again we read, and about which you, speaking of Timothy, you made the good confession. 
Now, there is some debate as to when Timothy made this so-called good confession. Some say it was at his ordination. Others say it was at his conversion. Still more say it took place at his baptism. But regardless of when, the point is that this confession was not made with Timothy being all alone staring in front of a mirror. There are witnesses. And the point is this. Please hear this. The presence of those witnesses should motivate Timothy. And it should do us too. Christian, we flee and we follow and we fight and we fix. And we do so because we're not alone. God the Father is with you. Christ is beside you. The very Spirit of God indwells you. And the church stands ready at your side to encourage you and serve you. It's it's kind of one of those crazy things. We live in supposedly the most connected age in all of civilization, and yet the stats bear out that we are the most depressed and isolated people in all of human history. We are not alone. The very triune God is in your corner, and so are God's people. And so what Paul is saying to Timothy and what I'm saying to you is this. Press on in the faith. And you've got brothers and sisters that will put their arms around you and help carry you if you need it. Then second, purity should motivate us. Look again at verse 13. What's the charge? Paul says, I charge you. What's he charged to do? Verse 14, to keep the commandment what? unstained and free from reproach. So what should drive Timothy, what should drive the pastor today, and what should drive you today? A desire to keep the commandment unstained, or to use my language, Christian, to be pure. Now that raises the question, well, what is this commandment? And commentators differ at this question. Most likely, it refers to upholding, keeping, proclaiming, and defending the faith. That is to say, this really encompasses all that Timothy, as a pastor, is called to do. The exhortation goes something like this. Timothy, strive to keep the commandment. Strive to do what Christ has called you to do. Strive to be faithful in this work. For one day, end of verse 14, you will experience the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. And I would just take this opportunity, brothers and sisters, to remind you that this is also true. You've been called as a man or a woman, a husband, a father, a wife, a mother. You may be single or married or widowed. You may have your vocation either in the home or out of the home, but I assure you God has called you to put your hands to the plow somewhere. You might be a student. You might be retired. You're a member of this church. You have a neighborhood that God has planted you in. And you and I are called to be faithful. One of our chief desires ought to be that we would be found pure on the day of Christ's return. This is what Paul prayed for the Philippians. May your love abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and what, and, be so, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. That should be our prayers for ourselves and our families and one another, that we would be pure and blameless 
on the day of Christ. So what should motivate us in our mission? Presence and purity, and then finally, praise. I want you to notice, Paul can scarcely hold it all in. It's just sort of bubbling up from within his soul. Verse 15, which he will display at the proper time. And here he goes. He who is blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Dear Christian, undergirding everything, what, what holds us up? What motivates us and thrills our hearts and and stirs our affections and energizes our souls? What is that? It is this, that we will behold the face of God. And on that day, you will not be bored, but you will be utterly enraptured in His glory and with His praise. So here's the connection. Maybe think of some person that you admire could be past or present, could be a politician or a war hero, maybe a musician or a movie star or an athlete, whoever it is in your mind, let's say that you knew you were going to have dinner with them tomorrow evening. Do you think that that would affect you leading up to that meal? Would you not be so excited that everything else would take second place? Well, brothers and sisters, here's the punchline. We will see Christ. We will behold Him. We will meet Him and dwell with Him. And that's not sort of one of those, I hope. That is what God has promised to us in His Word. That's really the point of the covenant, right? God entered into covenant with us. Why? So that He would be our God and we would be his people. Or maybe just to sort of get it right down and dirty into the gutter, God made a covenant with us so that we would live with him forever. That is what the sovereign of the world has done. He who is king of kings and lord of lords, he has guaranteed it. Sure, as Paul would tell us here, he dwells in unapproachable light. And no, you have not seen him but he has seen fit to reveal himself to us in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is your creator and your redeemer, and you were made to praise him. And in Christ, that is exactly what you will do. And the the very thought of this, the prospect of it, it should be wind in the sails of our faith. As soldiers... It should motivate us in our mission. Now, in conclusion, let me labor to make something very important very clear. These motives, presence, purity, praise, these are motives, not manipulation. These are reasons to stir your affections, not rewards for you to earn. Let me say the same thing, just a little bit differently. These are gifts of grace, not payment you've worked for. This is so critical, and it is so critical because if you get this wrong, you will live an utterly miserable Christian life. 
Because if you think it all comes down to you and that you have to flee X amount of sin and follow so many rules and fight really good and fix upon eternal life and do so without ever having any doubts, and if you think that once you do that and only after you do that, then you may or may not get the blessing of God's presence and purity and praise, then you, my friend, are destined to live a Christian life of either pride or despair. Think of it this way. Let's say you head out tomorrow to your driveway to shovel some snow. And so you grab the snow shovel, and on the way out, you go outside and you flip it upside down. So you grab the blade, and you use that as the handle. And then you grab the handle, and you try to use that to pick up the snow. How's that going to go for you? It's going to be pretty miserable, isn't it? Well, in the same way, if you turn these wonderful motivations, ones that are promised by God, secured by Christ, and kept by the Spirit, if you turn them into something that you have to earn or work for, then you will be a miserable Christian. Miserable. You will lack assurance, you will lack fruitfulness, you will lack effectiveness, you will spend the entirety of your life either with a fat head or never getting out of bed, pride or despair. So, here's the good news, Christian soldier. You already have the presence of Christ with you. He has promised you, I am with you always to the end of the age. By the very Spirit of God, Christ dwells within you, Colossians 1.27. It's done. It's paid for in full. Christ shed his blood to draw near to you. It's done. Likewise, while we are called to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, verse 14, rest in this reality. You are already pure in Christ. The New Testament is chocked full of wonderful metaphors to impress this upon our hearts and minds. Let me just give you a handful. Cleansed, made new, forgiven, healed, purified. All of these and many more. Christian, they are not dangled out in front of you as if they were a carrot. They are yours now. That's why one of the reasons that Christians get baptized is because baptism signifies the promises of God in Christ and that your sins are washed away and that you are forgiven. And God doesn't make that promise at your baptism hoping that maybe like if you get really good and become a super Christian, that, that stuff will be true. God makes that promise at the beginning of the Christian life. This is why Christians in the New Testament are baptized almost immediately upon conversion. It's God's promise to us. And again, it's a promise that is fulfilled right then and there. You are forgiven your sins. You are cleansed. Sometimes Christians get this twisted, and they think that God makes all of these promises for some future version of you. That's not the case. God makes those promises to you in that very moment. And Christian, as I've already mentioned this morning, you were made for God. 
to see God, praise God, experience God, love God, know God, and hear God. Do you realize this is why you have eyes and a voice and a heart and a mind and ears? It's because God gave you all of this so that you would be able to experience all of him. God made you for himself. And though it is true, you and I have fallen in our sin. And like Adam and Eve, we've been banished from the presence of God. But in Christ, God welcomes us back into his presence. And we will see God. And on that day, our hearts will be satisfied with God. And we will praise him, not for what we have done, but for what he has done for us and in us and through us. So, Christian, must you flee and follow and fight and fix? And the answer is, of course. Soldiers follow the orders of their general. But we do not do so in an effort to curry favor with God. We follow the orders of King Jesus out of gratitude. We follow the law of God because all that God has done for us to make us His. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we recognize once again our own not just smallness and finitude, but our need, our sin, uh, our dependence upon you. Your word tells us that in you we live and move and have our being, that you give to all mankind life, breath, and everything. And we pray that you would, in your grace, continue to pour out those gifts upon us. We pray that you would stir our affections in such a way so that we would truly long to know Christ more fully, that we would love him, that we would be satisfied in him. We pray that you would keep us from turning this Christian life and this new year into a treadmill. But we do pray that you would energize us from the inside out to faithfully follow and serve Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen.